How's that? I have a theory. I think it's a fact, not a theory. That I, I believe Christians get their theology more from the songs they sing than the sermons they listen to. Not that the sermons they listen to aren't um, deep truth, I hope. I know they are here. But the songs we sing are repetitive. We sing them time and time again. And we tend to memorize, remember poetry more than, than, than prose. And, and so the, every song today was incredible. So because it really sets me up good. Thanks, Angela. So good morning. Let me just open in prayer. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you are for us. What an amazing truth. The God of the universe is for us, and you've made us fit for your presence. You have redeemed us. You have changed our hearts, given us your spirit. We are exalted with Christ. We sit at his right hand now, Lord, in some incredibly mysterious way. And today we are here for your purposes. So teach us and guide us. Convict us, Lord, of any sin we need to repent of. Um, Comfort our hearts where there's pain and sorrow. And um, in the end, Lord, we want to be instruments in your hand, sharp instruments in your hand, to be used for your glory. So all of these things we ask because of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. So we're kind of, com- this is part two of last week. Last week I, I had a sermon that I was named Living in the now in the light of the, living in the now with the end in view. Living in the now with the end in view. And basically we, I based that upon 2 Timothy 4, 7, where I, Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And we talked about that a lot last week. But I want to keep that theme going here and instead of being in 2 Timothy, we're going to jump to 1 Timothy. Because Paul has written the, what's called the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. He's written them to Timothy and Titus because he, is, he has left these young men behind as he's traveling. He's left Timothy in Ephesus and Titus he's left in Crete. And he's instructed them to, to set the affairs of the church in order, appoint elders, and step into the cultural errors that are happening and correct them. Because anywhere we live, the, what the, I always like to refer to it this way. We, we swim in the water of western United States. Okay, think about that. Fish swim in water, right? Is anybody here today? Fish swim in water. Do, do fish know they're in water? They don't. That's, that's the world they live in. But we swim in the water of the culture of the western United States. But we have to have an awareness that that's, this water we swim in doesn't represent us. It's often filled with great air and offense to God. So we have to be aware of the water, i.e. the culture, and, 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 and what, what is the truth that needs to be brought to our lives and to the culture at large that can correct, make the water cleaner, you might, if you want to keep the metaphor going here, which is the gospel. So Paul has sent Timothy into Ephesus to address some of these cultural degradations of his day as it relates to following Jesus. So I'm going to read to you the, uh, f- the first few verses of, of 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 to 5, where he talks about this. Paul says this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. 
nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And that word stewardship there is a technical term Paul uses for the gospel. So, so we have a contrast here. We have, we have ends of a spectrum. That is, we, we can myths and endless genealogy speculations, or we can focus on this idea of the stewardship of God that comes with faith. So it's one or the other. And then we can mix them, but, but Paul's thing here is, is, is deny those myths and speculations, move away from them, and teach your people to do the same, and focus on this stewardship from God that is by faith, that is the gospel that comes by faith. Because here's what Paul says in verse 5, based on that, the aim of our charge, or as some versions say, the aim of our teaching, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Look at that again. The aim of our charge or the aim of our teaching is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I believe that that is those three things there at the end, the last section, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. I believe that's a description of regeneration. You've been born again, and God has changed your heart. He's put his spirit within you. He's cleansed your conscience. And he's given you the faith to believe. And so that last phrase there, a sincere faith, can be the idea of, a, it's really the word sincere in Greek is the word unhypocritical faith. A faith that is sincere, real, not hypocritical. All those things, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith will produce love. That is the goal of our teaching, Mark. And, and Dick, and Martin's not here today, the leadership of this church. The goal is to produce in us a deep love for the Lord and for one another and for those outside these walls that don't know Jesus that might even be against us. So, that's the setup. I want you to remember those, we'll come back to those verses in a bit. Now we're going to jump to 1 Timothy 4 as we look at this idea of living in the now in light of the end, where Paul instructs Timothy about training himself for godliness. So I want to talk about that, but we're going to start in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Remember, this is people in the church, in the community of the faith, that will depart from that faith because they're listening to demonic teaching and, and, and bought into it. The, the, this, this deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So they don't have a clean conscience. They have consciences that are seared because they're not regenerated. And these people forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So you can see probably what this is, is someone has come into the community of faith either believing they're a Christian or, or deceiving the, the community of faith, saying they are a Christian, but they're bringing in the speculative theology that, that denies marriage, that forbids you from eating certain foods, so there's a good chance these guys have some, some um, relationship to the Judaic background, to the Jewish background, 
which those things would have been true in Judaism. It's a, a den denial of food, for sure. Um, so, so Paul is telling Timothy that you must teach truth and teach against these lies because that's if you don't do this, Timothy, this will become the water your church swims in. It's so important that we understand what truth is, and that's why these songs are, are reminding us every time we sing them of what truth is. And then when, when you read your Bible, when Mark preaches the Bible, and Dick gets up here, whoever, whoever speech, speaks from this pulpit, the truth of the God's Word is what will keep us from being pulled into that water and drowning in it. Culture in every generation will decay and move away from the ways of the Lord. That's just the way it works. This says in later times, so from the top time Paul wrote this, in later times this is going to happen, Timothy. We're now 2,000 years later, and it's still happening. In fact, it's, I think it's, um, it's getting horrendous, the cultural expectation. We'll talk more about that in a minute. We shouldn't be surprised, but I still am. It still shocks me sometimes what people hold on to, what they believe, and what comes out of churches. So we can continue on, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So I don't say this to puff up Mark, but I've known the last three pastors here, um, Mark and Alan and Steve before him, and, and they all were deeply in love with Jesus, or are deeply, not past tense Mark, are deeply in love with Jesus, and love his word and took the responsibility of teaching his word very seriously. So this church has an incredible foundation and history of standing on what Paul says here, good doctrine that you have followed because you've been taught that by your leaders, been trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. So in light of this, Faith Bible Church, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. We have this spectrum again. It's either or. And like the tendency always to go in the middle, we need to grab this and say, I, I will not be at that end of the spectrum that I follow irreverent, silly myths and, and foolishness from our world, no matter who's telling me it. If it doesn't match the word of God, I cannot follow it. But rather, rather the opposite end of the spectrum, train myself for godliness. We can get so easily distracted by what seems important but is not. Think about that as humans. We, something really shiny comes up, you know, we want to we look at that shiny thing and follow it and, and find out more about it, when in reality that shiny thing is going to drag us away from the Lord. It's going to drag us away from what is good. But we somehow are enamored by these shiny things called new ideas. Humans have a penchant to major on the minors, things that are relatively meaningless when it comes to the kingdom of God. Let me back that up. Christians, not just humans, but Christian humans, humans that are Christian, however you want to say that, because there are other kind of Christians besides humans. Sorry. We have a penchant to major on the minors and that are relatively meaningless when it comes to the kingdom of God. In the last year, I've seen things on the Internet that kind of just scratch my head and go, does someone really believe this? One guy, 
I'm probably going to get in trouble with somebody today. So, But one guy was saying, one of the reasons the church is in such disrepair today is because we no longer believe in a flat earth. And you know, if, if you believe in a flat earth, good for you. But it has nothing to do with walking with Jesus. But this guy was suggesting, because we no longer believe in a flat earth, that's why the church is in error. I'm going, are you kidding me? That's a little shiny thing that we would look at and go, oh, this, is, this enamors me. It has nothing to do with the gospel, nothing whatsoever, but somehow someone grabbed onto it, put it on the internet, then other people will read it and go, yeah, that's right. And I want to go, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I had a guy come, come in, and again, this is where I get in trouble, come into my Bible study and when I was a pastor in Incline. Well, I was there for six years, and I, I retired from there last April. And this was a wonderful man, a good friend of mine, came in with an article during the middle of the pandemic that was from a doctor that, that wrote, um, lived in Africa. And this doctor wrote an article that if you take the, va the vaccine for COVID, you will lose the image of God. The vaccine will take the image of God away from you. And I looked at him and said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Whatever, if you don't want the vaccine, don't take it. That's, that's, that's your issue. But there's no way the image of God can be removed because I get a shot. Half of the Bible study agreed with him. It floored me how easily the people I've been discipling for six years, or by that time four years, could be pulled away by this little shiny thing because it appealed to their desire not to get a vaccine. So I did a whole sermon on it. I said, if you don't want to get the vaccine, don't. But quit judging each other. And quit being silly. Silly myths. We follow conspiracy theories. We bring our faith way too much into our nationalism. I love America. I, I am an American. But first, I belong to the kingdom of God. And I'm a, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus that lives in the United States of America. And I want to be a good citizen here, but they are not the same. It's things we need to understand what the kingdom of God is and what the gospel is. And be careful that we don't follow speculations and myths that merge these things that then cause strife among us where we are fighting and we are not living the love that flows from a good conscience and a pure heart and a sincere faith. Because that's what's going to affect the world. That's what it means to live in the now with the end in view. Because see, when we all are buried six feet under, the question will be when we stand before God, what did you do with the gospel I gave you to help a dying world know about the Savior Jesus? Or did you spend time on silly, irreverent myths that helps nobody and cause fights in the church. Does that make sense? And it's just so easy, because I can, I can get sucked into these conspiracy theories. My son and I love to talk about them. He, 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 he hope he's not listening, but he kind of follows some of these conspiracy theories, and I said, that's just silly. But we may have to edit that out, Dick. <laughs> Too late. Rather than do that, Rather than focus on things that cause internal conflict in the church and make us look stupid to outsiders, distracting us from the gospel, rather than doing that, Paul says, rather train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. 
This goes with what I said last week. We put our hands to the plow. And, and, and remember, if I said last week, I remember at the end of my sermon at the doxology, I read Jude, the doxology at the end of Jude, where it says, to the God who will make you stand. So God is the one who empowers us. He, we, this is not our own strength. This is not something I do to make him love me more or to save me. He has redeemed me. He has put his spirit within me. He has changed my heart. He has turned my affections away from my sin to him. And he now has empowered me to do this. So the whole new covenant is the concept of being forgiven of your sin. This is Ezekiel 36. Be forgiven of your sin, being cleansed clean of all the filth of your sin. It, it's there, that's, that's Ezekiel 36, 25. 26 says that it's, he's given me an, a, a living heart. He took the heart of stone out of my chest that was, was against him and put a living heart in my chest that was for him. And then the, the, the capstone of that is verse 27. It says, and I'm going to put my spirit within you to cause you to walk in my statutes. The power to obey is from him. He's the source of it. He's the cause of it all. He's the only one who gets glory for it. So when he says train yourself, it's not something you drum up the energy for. He's already given you that power and ability. But I must put my hand to the plow and say what I want more than anything else is to be like Jesus Christ godliness train myself for godliness so i want to define what godliness is as we're going to talk about that now paul prefers paul wrote 13 letters new testament right yes 13 um in the other 10 besides these three pastoral epistles paul prefers the word holiness um a a, a word that comes out of um a greek word hagias or hagiazo um the noun and the verb that he prefers those to talk about what it means to grow like God, become like Christ. But in the pastoral epistles, he doesn't use those words very often. He, instead, he uses the word godliness 17 times in one form or another in three letters that are only 13 or 14 chapters. So he uses this word over and over to describe the same thing, but with a little more emphasis. Because now Paul is talking to Titus and Timothy about establishing the church order and how to live with the people of God. So this word godliness is, is, is uh, here's my definition. And I've taken this from encyclopedia or, or Bible dictionaries. A Christ-like character trait in the followers of God, which is demonstrated in their actions, religious practices, and devotions. So I'm going to read that again. A Christ-like character trait in the followers of God, which is demonstrated in their actions, religious practices, and devotions. The word devout seems to be a word that communicates well the nuances of this word group. This is more, this, this involves a character trait that comes out from inward out that is promised in the new covenant. But it also is displayed in how I live my life in serving God. So it's very important here because Paul talks about people who, who have an appearance of godliness but don't really have it because they deny the power thereof. In other words, you, they, they claim to be godly but you don't see their devoutness in serving the people of God and living in the, within the community and, and being a loving person. So this godliness is both an internal trait that comes out in the way I treat you, in my devoutness in how I serve you and I serve the Lord. Does that make sense? It's important as we move on here. So I, I, I reworded it again. It describes an internal character quality that is displayed externally in devout practices that are observable by others. And, and we'll see how this plays out in the pastoral epistles. Hypocrisy is the opposite. 
Hypocrisy is someone who claims to be godly and devout, but you, you don't see it. We have all sorts of those people in our world and, and who sit in these pews because Jesus gave a parable once called the wheat and the tares, how a farmer plants his wheat, but the enemy comes and sows weeds behind it. And, and the, his, his workers, the, far, the farmer's workers say, should we go and rip up the weeds? And, and what did Jesus say in the parable? No, don't do that. If you rip up the weeds, because the weeds and the wheat look similar when they're younger, when they're, when, they're, when they're growing. If you rip the weeds up, you may rip the wheat up too. Wait to the harvest at the end of the age. So ultimately that the wheat is going to bloom and produce a fruit that the weeds will not do that. Then you know who's follower Jesus, who is not. That's what Jesus does at the end of the age. Every believing community, every local church has wheat and weeds in it. And you don't know who's who. That's something you have to ask yourself. We talked about that last week. That wasn't in my notes. That was free. So, so train yourself for God. We're going to come back in a minute to show how you, how you train yourself. Um, verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Who, I, Angela, underline that for me. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Your godliness, as you train yourself for this godliness, there's value today and it holds the value for the next life. So I want to explore those here in a minute. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So first, let's talk about the fact that physical exercise is of little value. Really? I would never like this verse. I've always had a bit of a, uh, is it a pride issue, an ego issue? I don't want to admit that. But I've always prided. Is prided a verb, Lynn? It is today. I've always prided myself on being physically fit and be able to do things that people 20 years younger than me can't do. I mean, like last night, my grandson, he's 16 years old. He's senior, 17 years old. And he works out all the time, goes to the gym. So we did a bunch of push-ups last night. And I whipped him. 65-year-old grandpa did more push-ups than a 17-year-old could do. And I had to admit it was, I kind of enjoyed it. Um, I, I used to run, Teresa and I used to run triathlons. My wife's name's Teresa. We used to run triathlons and adventure races. For about 10 years, we ran them. And we put a ton of time, a ton of time into preparing for that. I mean, I, mean, I put way more time preparing for the triathlons than I put in my sermon prep in, in, in several of those years because I was trying to go to nationals for the, the, the Xterra races. And... Then I read this verse, and it says it's of little value. This has always bugged me. But why is it of little value compared to godliness? So th this is when I ask a question, you guys can talk back now. It goes away. How so? Yeah, you get old, you die. Okay? And then what value does my running triathlons have for the next life? Zippo. It's sure enjoyable in this life, but frankly, it was 
just level narcissistic of me. It was all about me. So it had very little value for this life too. So, so this was, this was hard for me to, to come to grips with the fact that we have a culture that is obsessed with physical fitness. I'm not sure how well we're doing as a culture, but I did some study on it. Americans spend $264 billion a year on physical exercise in related categories. And that doesn't include, that includes the idea of buying weights or going to a gym and things like that, running shoes. It doesn't include some of the supplements. It pushes almost a trillion dollars Americans spend when we put the entire category together to be physically fit. And so I, I'd say we, me, in our culture, the water we swim in is distracted deeply from the truth of this passage. So it's been good for me to remember this. I'm still going to work out, though. But so I can be healthy to be serve the purposes of God. How's that? Hold me accountable, Mark. So now here's some homework for you. It says that godliness... Let's read it. Godliness holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. If physical exercise has little value for the present life and no value for the life to come, what is the promise of godliness for this life? If you pursue godliness, this devoutness, that is Christ-like character developed in you that is reflected in the way you live your life among the people of God and among your neighbors who don't know Jesus, that they can see that's a devout woman, that's a devout man. What is the value for this life? We'll see in a moment how Paul sees the value. The thing that enamors me more here is the value for the next life. So I don't think we give much thought to what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like. What, what's it going to be like when Christ returns and we've been raised from the dead? Ephesians talks about it in Ephesians 2.7, a verse we tend to skip over, that, that we will become examples of God's grace in the ages to come. Not age, not singular ages to come, implying God has a plan for eternity, ages, that his glory is going to be revealed more and more, and somehow we are part of that plan as he, as he does whatever he's going to do, and we are part of that plan, that we carry out that plan for his glory. I'm being very vague because I don't know what it is, but what it implies to me in here too is that Glory, new heavens and new earth is not static. It's not you know, the picture of floating on the cloud with a harp, um, praising God. Not nothing wrong with praising God, but but it's not a static thing. It is it is there's purpose in the new heavens and earth that continue God's plan for His glory, that we are still His instruments, and somehow the way I live my life today and train myself for this godliness equips me for something then too. It has value for today and for the life to come. So the homework is meditate on that. 
Meditate on it and talk to God. What does that mean? Because I am such a... I tend to live for now, right now. Where, where is fulfillment and pleasure right now? Forgetting that, that in, in, in this whole now thing, is, I'm, I, I, turned, I, I just got on Medicare. That, that, that's one of the, 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 what do you call that? The milestones. I go, oh, crud. That's when you're old. <laughs> I, always re, I always refused to believe that until I got Medicare. You know, oh, wow. This, you know, I'm towards the end, not the beginning. But I want it to count. So now whatever I have squandered in the past, I want now to say whatever years I have left on this earth, which I hope are many because I've been physically fit. Bad joke. Bad joke. Um, count for God's glory. And whatever the life to come is, that I have learned to live like Christ here to where whatever his purposes are has equipped me to be his instrument there too. More so than if I was just selfish here. Does that make sense? That's what we need to meditate on. Meditate on what those things are, what those things mean in verse 7, verse 8. Paul says in verse 10 then, for to this end we toil and strive. To this end meaning godliness. We toil and strive. That word strive there is the word fight. I have fought the good fight. Same word here, just translated differently. I, we have toiled and stri- we have toil and strive. We fight because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things, Timothy. So why would Paul have to toil and strive to achieve this godliness God has for him? Why these intense words, toil and strive? Because of my propensity to chase shiny things. I still, though I'm regenerated, I have a mind that is not entirely renewed yet. A mind that still swims in the water of our culture that is narcissistic and selfish. And when I don't even realize, I th- realize I'm doing it, it's so easy for me to be to veer off over here to something that is not honorable to God. So I must toil and strive for this godliness. This describes an all-out effort of focus, renewing my mind, remembering who I am. You guys familiar with Keith Green? Singer from, he died in 1983. I became a Christian in 1979 when I was 20 years old. And I, I moved to Colorado to get away from the drug culture of Reno that I was part of. And my brother lived in Colorado, got me a job logging. And, and we were up in the mountains of northern Colorado. And there was this Christian festival called Jesus Rocky Mountain Style. So I went to his outdoor concert for three days. Went to it, and Keith Green was there. And he blew me away with his music and his dedication to the Lord. So I became a, a, a follower of Jesus, excuse me, of Keith Green. That's almost blasphemous right there. I loved his music. Even tried to join his commune in Texas. Got turned down. That bummed me out. But here's, here's the line from one of his songs of this toil and striving for godliness. Here's what he says. One sleepless night of anguished prayer, I triumphed over sin. One battle in the holy war, God's promised me to win. 
So think of toil and strive for godliness. In these words, one sleepless night of anguished prayer, I triumphed over sin. One battle in the holy war God's promised me to win. Have you ever stayed up all night praying against the temptations coming at you? That you were so, so committed to not sinning against your Lord that all night long you were in spiritual warfare and prayer. I can't say that I've done that. So, how do we train ourselves for godliness? The command is there. We toil and strive, but what's the practical way to do it? I want to look at two other passages in the pastoral epistles where Paul talks about this. So first one is chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, a few chapters after our passage in 4. And I'm actually in verse 2 where it says, Teach and urge these things, Timothy. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. That's what those things do in the church. They don't produce the love that flows from a, a, a pure heart and a clean conscience and a sincere faith. They produce strife and arguments that do nothing for the gospel and make the world look at us as a bunch of dingbats. And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So now, from verse 6 to verse 10, Paul goes on to talk about the role of money in our lives. And this is where the famous verse, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. So you, you know the context. So after he talks about how money can destroy your faith, or a passion, not money, a passion to get more money can destroy your faith, and leads you down a horrible road, Paul then gives Timothy the opposite plan, the opposite road, the opposite spectrum of pursuing godliness. But as for you, verse 11, as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Look at these commands. Flee these things. Flee the, flee the love of money. As you're fleeing that, now pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. See, th these are active words that I have a goal in my pursuits. When I ran triathlons, I had a goal. It was to beat my previous time. I had a goal. In triathlons, they would write your age on your calf. So I, I was 48 years old when I ran my first triathlon. So I had 48 on my calf. And then I would see 25-year-old in front of me with 25 on his calf. My goal was to pass him. And then I'd have a 66-year-old woman pass me. And I learned that triathlons do not, um, gender is not the issue. Um, but I had a goal. My goal was to pass the people in front of me. And, and it was a very concrete goal. Well, these things are concrete. I'm going to flee the love of money. But I'm going to pursue righteousness. And this is, again, you need to go home and read these words and think about what does it look like to pursue these? Godliness. Faith. How do you pursue faith? Every day God puts you in situations where you've got to believe in Him and trust Him. 
Every day, you, you make a choice. Am I going to trust God or am I going to worry? Pursue love. Steadfastness. Gentleness. I, I'm not so sure if the unbelieving world were given a survey and they listed these words out, would they look at, say, the people I know who go to church, this is what they look like. I'm not sure they would always agree that we look gentle. Verse 12, fight is another verb. So first we have flee, pursue. Now fight the good fight of faith, which Paul says at the end of his life he did do. Now he's telling Timothy to do it. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Interesting, take hold of the eternal life. So you have eternal life now. You know that, right? Eternal life is not simply something you get when you die. John 17, 3 says, Jesus in his prayer to his father says, I gave them eternal life in verse 17, 2. Then he says, and this is eternal life. He defines it for us. This is eternal life that you might, that they, they mean Jesus' disciples, might know you, the living God, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life isn't about a time frame. It's, it's about a quality of life that you know God through his son, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is a relationship that lasts forever. Take hold of eternal life. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who, is the te who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone argues about keep the commandment. And I'm just going to say in the context it's the commandment to pursue godliness. So, these commands. First of all, know your identity. He calls Timothy a man of God. That's his identity. Know your identity, who you are. Are you a man or a woman of God? Then these actions, flee, pursue, fight, take hold of, keep the commandment. These are intense words of a battle. Christianity is not for sissies. Do you get that? Christianity is not for sissies. The cultural water we swim in is one of ungodly controversies. People are mean-spirited and selfish. What was once under the surface, and we'll keep this, this water we swim in metaphor, once what was under the surface in this water, in people's hearts is now coming out of their mouths in viral hatred. You, you, don't, you don't have to go very far if you express your opinion to be called a hater. And you guys know the different categories I'm talking about. We must not be like the world if we truly want to reach them. So remember Paul's words. The aim of our charge is what? Love that flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. One more passage. I know I'm going long. 2 Timothy 2.20, if you want to turn there. 2 Timothy 2.20. This, this will wrap things together for me. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Now, if you know the, the metaphor here of, of clay or, or, or vessels for honorable use and dishonorable, uh, a dishonorable vessel is the chamber pot. 
that you keep under your bed. Okay? So, so he's using the metaphor of these vessels in a house. Some are for, for beauty and for good purposes, serving people in this beautiful silver dish, or a chamber part under your bed because you don't want to go out to the outhouse in the middle of the night. So that's honorable, dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, so before it was, it was train yourself for godliness. Now it's cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. I want to suggest to you that answers our question, what is the value of godliness today? What is the value of godliness today when Paul says it has value for this life and the life to come? The value of godliness today is you become an instrument in God's hands for his purposes. When it says there cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. God's purpose to save you, and go to, go to Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14 to see this, but in the end, and also 2 Timothy 3, 17, the end, your purpose is good works. To be an instrument in God's hands as he uses you to serve other people. But he needs you to be honorable. He needs you to be godly, to actually be able to use you. And, and what, what a thing. Do you want to be an instrument in God's hands? Do you want to be that honorable vessel that God says, I can use Fred, Mary, whoever, because they have dedicated themselves to me, and I can use them to reach a dying world that doesn't even know I love them. So, Timothy, verse 22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. I highlighted peace in my notes because I tend to think sometimes um, us evangelicals can almost border on warmongers that, that you know, I don't, it's too much to go down that road right now. But we have a God who says in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. If you want to be like your father, you pursue peace, not conflict. Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Because the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponent with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's what it means to be an instrument in God's hand. That, that is the value of this life for pursuing godliness. So living in the now with the end in view. I don't want to be morbid, but we have, 2015, I had brain surgery. If you notice, I have a dent in my head. I have brain surgery because of a bacterial infection that took over my body, and they had to go in and pull the bacteria out of my brain. And it was, it was potentially deadly. And I was, out, I was out of work for six months. I was at Grace Church then. I don't work for six months. And when I came back, my first sermon, first thing in my mouth was, um, let me see. Then it was. I think, I think I said I have 21, 21 more years to live. And and I could see people's faces. Like, 
that's sick. What is he saying? I said, well, I forget how old I was then, but the average white male lives 81 years old. That's 21 years away. So statistically speaking, I have 21 more years to live. That's a reality. By the way, that 21 years is less now. What am I going to do with those 21 years? What am I going to do with them? Am I going to make them count? Am I going to live in the now with the end in view? If 81 is still the age, I'm 65, so I have 16 years left now. And, and the people say, that's morbid. You shouldn't think that way. No, it's reality. We're all going to die someday unless Christ returns first. And so let's live in the now with the end in view. I want to be able to say like Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us that without your constant faithfulness, we can do nothing. Help us to grab hold of our identity as your children, as objects of your love, as, as a God who is for us, who empowers us to live the life you've called us to, to be your instruments. We all want that, Lord, even though we have competing passions and selfishness. Help us to root out the selfishness, renew our minds, put our hands to the plow and pursue this godliness you have called us to. We thank you. Thank you for your great, great patience. Thank you for your forgiveness and cleansing every time we mess up. All these things we give you praise because of Jesus. In his